Maureen Reinches is from Mission, Kansas. No, she's not missing. In fact, Maureen is highly visible as a volunteer, advocate, and coordinator in the missing persons community in the Midwest United States. Today you get to hear Maureen talk about her knowledge, what got her involved, and how you can get involved too. I'm Ed Denzel, and this is Unfound. Volume 4 update episode, you should have seen this coming. I was dead serious in my opening when I said that I want all of you to consider getting more involved in the missing persons community in 2020. But I'm not a dictator. I'm not the general and you aren't enlisted soldiers. I'm not the cult leader and I'd never want anyone to drink the Kool-Aid. Instead, and to put it the way Mike Tomlin, coach of the Pittsburgh Steelers, might say it, The community needs volunteers, not hostages. People who sign up, who aren't drafted. Human beings who want to be here, not because it's some type of requirement. Well, for me, if that's what I believe, and I do believe that, my job is to introduce you to people who were once like you. On the outside, going about their lives, knowing about missing persons cases, taking an interest in them, but experiencing them from a distance. Then for them, something changed. In fact, their whole world changed. Well, today you're going to hear from a person like that, and I hope she can give you the inspiration, the courage, and the knowledge on how to get more involved in 2020. There is no case for today, so I will simply go through Maureen's resume at this time. She has a B.A. in Management and Human Relations. She has a Master's Degree in Psychology, and she got that in 2018. She got her Certificate in Amber Alert Training in 2017. She was a promoter-slash-administrator for Billy's Law during the 115th Congress. She is a volunteer victims advocate for NamUs in Kansas. She is the Executive Director of Communications for Missouri Missing, and she is also a certified instructor at the Alice Training Institute. Unfound News. I've added a new person to the Unfound team over the past week. Yes, that means I now have another assistant. How many is that now? Natasha is her name, and she'll be working on refurbishing and managing the website, which certainly needs it along with maximizing the potential of the Unfound podcast channel on YouTube. I'm certainly happy to have her on board. Next, some stats from Facebook regarding the Unfound discussion group and page. The group added over 4,400 members during 2019. We now have about 6,700 people in there. And oh, we only blocked 16 people for the entire year. That's it. 16. 
The Unfound Page, 5,700 likes during 2019. That brings its total to about 7,200. Those are both outstanding numbers for both the group and the page. Thank you so much. Finally, 2019 was a great year for myself and Unfound. I hope it continues in 2020, and I hope you all have a wonderful year as well. Where you can find Unfound. Unfound supports accounts on Podomatic, iTunes, Stitcher, Instagram, Twitter, Spotify, and Facebook. On Wednesday nights at 9 p.m. Eastern, please join us on YouTube for the Unfound live show. Contribute to Unfound at patreon.com forward slash unfound podcast. This week, I need to thank KB and Kim. You can also contribute at PayPal, unfoundpodcast at gmail.com. That is also the email address. Merchandise, the books on Amazon.com in both ebook and print form. Do not forget the reviews. Shirts at unfound-podcast.myshopify.com. Cards at makeplaincards.com forward slash sell forward slash unfoundpodcast. And please mention unfound at all true crime websites and forums. Thank you. I'm so happy to have on this episode of Unfound, Maureen Reinches. Maureen, welcome to Unfound. Thank you for having me. You're very welcome. Let's just start here. Uh, as I've already set up in the intro before this interview, um, you are an advocate. You've been involved in getting laws passed. Uh, your communications director, you have a long list of uh, your, let's just put it this way. Your resume is very long in the missing persons community. You've done a lot over the last uh, 14 years, but let's just start here. Where are you from? What's your background, your education? You know, those, maybe those general qualities first. Okay. That sounds fair. Um, my education, I have a master's in psychology, um, that I just attained about a year ago. Um, I'm a communication specialist. Um, I am the executive director of communication for Missouri Missing, which is a 501c3 um, based out of Jeff City, Missouri. Um, I am a nameless victim advocate. I went through their academy back in 2010. Um, uh, my day job, I am a resource specialist. I'm also a uh, Divert is the coordinator, which is protecting God's children coordinator for the parish that I work in. Mm. Okay. Um, I also am the founder of Kansas City Metro Networking Job Club. Um, have over five thousand members that I um, that are in my my group. Um, I have been facilitating job clubs since the nineties. Wow. Lots of different hats. Yeah. Oh, okay. Sounds like you're a busy, busy person, Maureen. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Yep, for sure. I know. I know the feeling. Uh, where are you? If you can say, where are you uh, originally from? Where did you grow up? And um, I grew up in the Kansas City metro area on the Kansas side in Johnson County, Kansas. Um, I currently live in Mission, Kansas. I have lived in Las Vegas. And Las Vegas, Nevada, and Scottsdale, Arizona, and moved back here. Okay. And I, I'm sure some of the listeners are going to say, oh, you lived in Las Vegas, because many of them know that 
uh, for a time, for about 13 years, I lived there as well. In fact, I still have a 702 um, phone number for my cell phone that I use for these interviews. Okay, so that's your education, um, what you're doing uh, right now. And, of course, we're going to get a little bit uh, deeper into that, some of these things that you've been doing over the last 14 years. Um, but I do have to ask you this, and you can say as much as, you, uh, as you'd like. Uh, how did you get involved in the missing persons community? Um, it was May 19, 2005, when my husband went missing from Las Vegas. Um, that is when it began, um, and then it just kind of evolved from there. Um, I went through the Names Academy. Um, I was put for a scholarship to the Fox uh, Technical College um, Missing and Unidentified Persons Training Conference. Uh, I've been through the Amber Alert training, and mm -hmm. basically, I've just been here for other families, and just a way to pay back the people that were there for me in the beginning, too. When it happened to you, when this happened to you. Mm -hmm. Okay. All yep. right. Let, let's start here as far as um, you getting into the community. If I would have encountered you, let's say, in, say, 2002, before you got involved, of course, I've only been involved in this since 2016, but let's just say that I was involved back then, and I would have asked you about missing persons in the United States and you know what the how police get involved and everything, what do you think uh, you would have said back then? Of course, you're very educated and experienced now, but maybe back in 2002, before you got involved... What do you think that you would have said? Um, I would have known only what I'd seen on TV. Um, I would have... I think I did know, I think most of us probably were aware of the National Center for Missing Exploited Children. Um, we didn't, you know, at that time I didn't even really think about adults going missing. Um I would have thought there was a wait period, which I did think there was a wait period to call when your loved one goes missing. Um, I would have thought the detectives take over the case and they go out and they solve it. Mm -hmm. And I didn't know that the families become the investigators. That's that's certainly true. It's certainly true. So I'm guessing then when this uh, happened to you and then you got involved, it was uh, quite a wake-up call. Kind of a extremely just nothing extremely. I'm guessing nothing that you could have ever uh, predicted that how things are the perception and the reality are, are two very different things. Very true, and I had skills going into it that kind of helped me understand quickly what was going on. Um, you know, between research skills and um. Being able to get out in front of the can you know, the news cameras and things like that, I had already had that experience, but not in the world of the missing. So I kind of had one little bit laid up than many of these families have. Mm -hmm. And still it was a shock to you? Oh, yeah. Yes. Okay. Yeah, I had no idea. I didn't even know what the NCIC was. I had no idea, you know, what protocols were. Or if or I thought protocols were in place that weren't in place, and, you know, they were just, it was mind-boggling. Mm -hmm. 
you look back at it now. You said you know you only know what you knew on, uh, know on TV, and I know the listeners are probably saying that you know that's something that comes up probably on my YouTube live show, not necessarily during the episodes, but during the live show. That I think because of TV, because of the fiction TV shows and things, people get uh, a very erroneous erroneous idea about how you know, um, crimes are solved or missing persons cases are solved. It's just not very realistic. Do you think that that's maybe the reason that you had a misconception or, or was it something else? No, I think that definitely played the biggest part. Okay. Okay. Well, then once you got involved, uh, 2005 was, uh, the pivotal year and 2006 and 2007, um, what then did you discover? Let's you know. Let's just talk about the public. You know, you were what just one of the public at one time, and then you became involved in the missing persons community. What do you think? You know, the public uh, needs to know. Just your average person, maybe as somebody like you, um, you know, before two thousand five uh, came around. How would you approach somebody these days? Somebody who knows nothing about missing persons cases or anything. What what can you say about that? Um, I would tell them to, yes, involved. I mean, you know, if that's an interest, a certain case takes an interest to, you know, do all your research, read up on it. Um, but be careful. Know that the families own their cases and nobody else does. And that anything you do should be going through the families. Um, you shouldn't be calling law enforcement on your own, unless you have a tip. Um, you shouldn't be calling law enforcement on your own to ask some crazy question, you know, that's probably been answered already. Um, let the family, you know, let the families give them the permission. Or let them give you the permission to call the police if you so desire to, you know. Mhm. Okay. And let's move on to this. Maybe then, kind of from the public to the to the next pay, the police. Uh, what did you discover about the police uh, in those very, you know, those early days or in the early years, two thousand six, two thousand seven, in contrast to what you thought before? What did you discover regarding the police? <laughs> um. I discovered quite a bit. Um, I had a very nice, very nice detective. Uh, he was a good man. He is a good man. Um, but I didn't know what questions to ask. Um, I didn't know the system, so I really didn't know what to be asking what, whatsoever. Um, it was early on, uh, Kelly Murphy, Kelly Jokowski got a hold of me. And she asked me for the NCIC number, and I'm like, NCIC what? <laughs> what are mm -hmm. you talking about, you know? <laughs> and she explained it to me, and so I called my detective and said, hey, do I, you know, is there an NCIC number? And he said, hold on, I'll get back to you in a couple hours. <laughs> so obviously he had not entered my husband into the NCIC. But once the question was asked, then he did what he was supposed to be doing, and he did get back to me with the number. Um, mm -hmm. uh, did you find think, did you would you say that you found initially that maybe the police departments of course you're just dealing with one in particular but maybe as you got to know about other police departments 
other families, et cetera, that police don't know as much about missing persons cases as the public thinks. That is very true. Um, you know, and it all depends on the police department. It depends on the police officer or the detective themselves, too. Um, it depends on how much training they've gotten because they get very little in academy, if anything, on the missing. And, you know, if their agency is not being proactive in getting their detectives out to, you know, the various training classes, then they're getting nothing. But even when they go out to the training classes, not all of them involve the families of the missing. So they're not getting that side of it, what the families are facing mm-hmm. as they're going through it. Okay. Um, and I ran into good cops. Oh, my God, all across the nation that reached out and helped me. You know, um, I think you either have a knack for it or you don't. You have the empathy for it or you don't. You know, some detectives are just there doing their job, and you know that's all they're doing. And they, and with the missing, it's hard because they may not get the case solved, and you know, during their tenure, um, and so it's not, you know, not the sweet place to be for a lot of these detectives. Mm, right. We'll come back. We're going to come back to the public and the police. We're going to break these down a little bit more a little later in this interview. But let me move on to this. What about missing persons families? What did you think you knew before, um, of course, you got involved? And then, of course, then once you got involved, of course, if you met Kelly Murphy, then, of course, you know about her son disappearing. What? How did your, percep- how did your perception change with them, you think, from be, be, uh, before to after? Um, I had never really considered the families that much other than, oh, I feel sorry for them, you know. I hope they, you know, find their missing loved one, but never really thought much past what goes on on a day-to-day basis for, you know, days, months, years, or decades. Um, it was a real eye-opener. Um, back in 2005, that was before Facebook, and so a lot of the families, we all met up on MySpace. Mm-hmm. And it was kind of crazy how many of us met up and are still very, very close friends, you know, to this day. Um, I had no idea there were so many people out there. I had no idea that there were so many people with loved ones who were adults that were missing. Right. Right. And we've talked about that, and I think we'll touch upon that in a bit. So you got to meet these other families, and... Um, you didn't realize, you know, what I've I, I think I've discovered over the like the last three plus years. It's a it's a very tight knit community. Everybody seems to know everybody else. You know, at least yes. the, those families. You know, of course, there are many families that, uh, just to put it one way, kind of move on. They kind of accept that the person, you know, after twenty, thirty years. But those families that are very are engaged all the time. They all seem to know each other. Yeah. We do. We've yeah. all reached out, you know, mm-hmm. and we all refer each other to each other, you know. Yeah. Um, like the spouses of the missing, you know, we're kind of our own little group so that, you know, we encounter them talking with, you know, other families that may have a child missing or something or, you know, a daughter or son missing or something. Well, um, mm-hmm. they, you know, 
Hey, did you know that there are so many other spouses that have, you know, their loved one you've seen? Sure. Uh, you might want to talk with so-and-so. Sure. Right. And I, I know just with my work for with Unfound for the last three plus years is that uh, I will interview a family member and then they will say to me, well, you need to talk to this person over here who I also know who has lost a loved one. And uh, at least some, I mean, I'm going to say at least 10% of the people that I've had on the program came to me from other guests because once again, because they all yeah. know each other, you know, so. That's right. And let me just finish this for this part uh, section of uh, this interview. Uh, you're also, you, as uh, the listeners will eventually find out, you've also gotten involved in getting laws passed. How would you then say you're di- you know, the difference between before and after regarding the law? And what I mean by that is both between like prosecutors, district attorneys who are responsible for maybe bringing some of these disappearance cases to a jury, the whole way up to getting laws passed, your perceptions regarding all of that? I think, well, first I'm going to start off with, we never did get the law passed, but we got it all the way mm-hmm. to the Senate, the U.S. Senate, until one senator um, denied us. <laughs> but, um, but I did learn the process. I learned the federal process. And now, and this is Billy's law I'm talking about. Now we're going state by state with it. So mm-hmm. I'm learning the state process, you know, who you go to, um, how you get this done, type of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not sure I'm understanding your question on okay. the prosecutors. Well, I, I guess what I'm asking is that uh, maybe it's not, you know, necessarily relevant for you know the situation you've been involved personally. But uh, a topic that came up, for example, when I had Tad Tobias on the program, is maybe um, prosecutors who are a little too hesitant. Do you bring missing persons cases to a jury? Because, you know, of course, in missing persons cases, there's there's no body. Uh, Tad Tobias talked about how, you know, some prosecutors don't want to uh, ruin their perfect prosecution uh, record of, you know, 100%. Uh, yeah. Have you maybe have you ever yeah. encountered any of that in your work? <laughs> well, luckily, um, I live in Kansas, and... We have Jennifer, Christine Rush, and Teresa Brown, who have been missing since 1989, and their killer was convicted. Hmm. I think it depends on the area you're living in, the politics involved. Um, hmm. They did have a lot on the guy that convicted, um, his name is Richard Grissom. So, you know, it wasn't such a crapshoot to go after him with the body still not being found. Okay. Well, that's good to hear. But in other cases, yeah, I could see in other areas, it depends where you're from, who the prosecutor is, um, how much evidence they have. Sure. Right. And you need to go to trial. The families don't want it to go to trial until they can get a conviction. You know, they don't want it tossed out as a mistrial or, you know, double jeopardy or something along those lines. Yes. Okay. All right. Uh, Let's move on to this now. Um, Regarding the public, we've already talked about it in general. Let's just – what do you think the biggest misconception the public has about missing persons cases and how they are investigated? Maybe just frankly, what do you think the public gets the most wrong as far as their perception is? 
you know, looking in from the outside? Um, they get they get a lot wrong because they don't know the system. Um, we have a lot of people weighing in on these cases, and it's great that they're enthusiastic, but they really need to sit down and look at what their state laws are, um, look at the protocols in their police forces that they're dealing with, um, and they, well, pretty much, yeah, they need to know the system. Mm -hmm. um, I think... I think the public, I think most of the public, they're not really getting heavily involved in the cases, think, well, the police are handling it. And they mm -hmm. don't realize that many times that's not it. It's actually the families out there solving these cases, going out and finding their loved ones. That is certainly true. That That is certainly true, especially after a certain period of time. You know, as, as disappearances get older, that is certainly true. And I know that... Um, you know, I try to help my guests as much as I can with my experience. Of course, my experience uh, is much less than yours, but trying to give my own, you know, opinions and insights from other cases because, as I've tried to tell them, at some point you're probably going to be doing this on your own, you know. Okay. So, okay. That's I'll true. And we really don't – police need to see that we really don't want these families going out and finding their loved ones if they're deceased, you know. Yeah. That shouldn't be it. They shouldn't have to be the ones to find the remains. Yeah. Right. It's it's traumatic enough as it is. Mm-hmm. Okay. That it is. Okay. Let's move on to the police again. Um, we had talked about this once again. As the listeners know, I usually talk to uh, guests a, a couple times before we record an interview. Um, why is it do we hear of in, why do we hear so much about police not taking adult missing persons case persons cases seriously, and why does this happen? Why do we hear so much more about children going missing and police, of course, jumping in with both feet in contrast to maybe even teenagers and, of course, adults? Why does this happen, do you think? Now, you've had a chance to look at this for 14 years. What do you think? Well, I think everybody is always naturally going to be um, – more worried about a child. I mean, a child is defenseless out there. But then sometimes many of our adults and teenagers are defenseless out there too. Um, every case should be taken seriously from the get-go, and they should always play to the worst-case scenario and rejoice if you know right. if it's the best-case scenario. But they can save lives if they jump on it right away and play to the worst-case scenario. Right. Right, and of of course, as as I think a lot of listeners now know, is that uh, do you think, uh, maybe I should ask you this, do you think the police play up that, well, adults can just walk off, you know, walk out of their lives anytime they want? Do you think that they maybe use that uh, excuse a little too much? Extremely too much extremely too much, and they're doing it for teenagers, too, um, which is just totally ridiculous and wrong. Um, nobody nobody voluntarily vacates their life. You know, always, they're either mentally ill, physically ill, <clears throat> an accident has occurred, you know, like where they've ran off the road or something and can't be found, 
um, or they've done something criminal or something criminal has been done to them. A sane, healthy, non-criminal doesn't vacate their life. And they need to understand that. The law enforcement. Uh, let's move on to this. This is something that I brought up. Uh, I, I think it's a, a, an inter, a fascinating topic. It's what I kind of call a, a paradox. You and I both know that among the public, even though the public may not understand missing persons cases like you and I do, uh, the public, you know, there's a reason that, the, for example, the TV show Disappeared has been on for many, many years. There's a reason that, uh, of course, this program Unfound has you know, thousands and thousands of listeners. There's other, of course, missing persons programs that are popular as well. Obviously, missing persons cases and people taking an interest in them uh, exists. On the other hand, why do you think it is, as you've talked about, and of course I've known about this too, is that missing persons departments is considered to be like the lowest of the low. And in fact, if uh, you know, a police officer has moved into that department, it's almost considered like a demotion. So it's this uh, perception that among the public, a missing persons cases are somewhat interesting, but among police, it's the opposite. Why do you th- uh, do you perceive it that same way? And, and if so, why do you think that is? Uh, I do perceive it that way, um, and many times, um, you know, it's you know, obviously in the bigger agencies where it is a demotion to them. Or it's a stepping stool to them, but it's not where they want to be. Um, you know, you've got a real treasure when the detectives who want it to be in the missing persons department because that person's working like crazy for the family, mm-hmm. the families. Um, well, and, well, enforcement, it's a job. And part mm-hmm. of the job is solving cases. And with the missing, you know, it may not get lost, mm-hmm. you know, during their time in that department. It's, you know, it's amazing to me that, uh, of course, I, my perception is that, uh, that a, a large majority of the, the cases that, you know, the, mis- the disappearances that we cover on Unfound are murders. I don't know that for a fact, but that's my perception. And so it's like, um, it's like the homicide department, but not. But homicide, it seems like a lot of um, police officers want to end up there, but they don't want to end up in missing persons. Yet missing persons and homicide are so close. Is that the but way you see it? it's the unknown. It's, uh, yeah, I do see it that way. But it's the unknown with the missing. They have very few clues, if any, to go on. Whereas most homicide, typical homicide cases, where you have a body immediately, yeah. they've got a lot to work with. Right. Right. But the missing detectives don't have much to work with. Right. Yeah, uh, of course, in, in very, very few of the cases, that the disappearances that I've covered, there's no DNA or, or anything like that. Fingerprints, we hardly no. ever talk about any of that on this program, simply because there is nothing. Oh, yeah. It's it's very rare. My daughters that, and I have already. My daughters and I have already said that somebody grabs any one of us, leave DNA at the scene, do whatever you can, cut yourself, do something. Yeah. <laughs> leave your DNA at the scene. Right. That's a 
good point. Yes. Yeah. Right. Right. Okay. Uh, do you think the key to, uh, as far as police maybe getting, uh, you maybe say jaded after a while or something like that, or they just look at this as a stepping stone. Do you think that we could get around that if we could better understand the difference between the people who are go missing for a few days and come back and then those people who go missing and never come back? Do you think that's like the main way that we can make an improvement in the investigation of missing persons cases? Because I, the way I look at it is in those first few days, it all looks the same. And then at some point, of course, somebody pops up for whatever reason, uh, being alive, and then these other people over here don't pop up at all. Do you think that's the key to all of this? Not not the key. Okay. Uh, it, w- it is worth looking into, but it's not, it's not the key. What it is is we need the families to be talking with law enforcement, training them on what it is they're going through. Um, Whatever has happened to the missing person has happened, for the most part. Um, The families have to keep living it and living it and living it and living it until it's solved. And so I think the families do a better job at educating law enforcement as to why the cases should be taken seriously in the beginning, um, why they should be ongoing investigation doing whatever possible to, you know, find leads. That's funny you put it. It's it's almost like the opposite. You'd think it would be the police training or teaching the families, but you're saying it should kind of be the exact opposite. Well, in an ideal world, it should be the police. But for now, until we get them all trained and a whole mindset reversed, um, it's got to be the families. It's on the families to train them. Mm-hmm. Right. What that's is what the... we're doing? That's why we're using our voices. Right. 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 And I, I agree with you. Uh, there's no doubt that uh, many of the the guests that I've had on my program know way more about missing persons cases than most police officers. There's n- there's no doubt in my mind yep. about that. A- a- absolutely, that is certainly true. Uh, What is the number one thing police officers need to learn? If we're going to talk about training and training them better and everything, uh, what? Where do you start with that? (laughs) Um, Well, making sure that any of the conferences, you know, they go to a lot of training, and any of the training that's being held for law enforcement should include, you know, a section on the missing and an unidentified person. But it should also include the families telling stories there or even putting the program together for law enforcement, for these conferences. Um, who do you think uh, do you, uh, the way – and we'll get I, – I certainly want to get into what you're doing these days, your responsibilities and everything. Do you think in, in – um, Having 14 years of experience, do you think that you are to the point where, and maybe you've already done this, and of course I want to talk about that, uh, training police officers? Do you think that... uh, I have spoken... Please, please go go ahead. ahead. Uh, I've spoken in front of them many times. Whenever I get a chance, um, 
with Missouri Missing, and whenever we have an event, we make sure, you know, the law enforcement is there. Make sure they're hearing, you know, the stories um, and that they're, you know, that they're included in all of these things. So wherever I can, I use my voice. I teach constantly, you know, just by talking with people. Okay. Okay. We, you had mentioned uh, an interesting uh, comment, a phrase, missing per- in our prior conversation, missing persons cases aren't revenue generating. What do you mean by that? And, um, you know, I guess what I would say is I guess homicide investigations aren't revenue generating either. What, do you, what, do you exact, what did you mean by that when you said that? Um, well, missing persons cases are not revenue generating. They are more um, revenue depleting for for law enforcement agencies. You know, especially if they're putting on big searches and things like that, and a lot of manpower. Um, it can deplete their revenue pretty quickly. I mean, they run out of money pretty fast on these. Um, as far as homicides and things like, yeah, they can be revenue generating, you know, especially if it's, you know, concerning drug deals or guns or, you know, things like that. Mm-hmm. Right. I see. I see what you're saying there. Okay. Okay. And, and I, the reason I thought that was interesting because I've maybe kind of put it uh, a different way. I said that, you know, over, over time I've said the tough thing about missing persons cases is that if every missing persons case, if they were to get the dogs and the helicopters and out, every time a missing person, a person disappeared, every police department in the United States would be broke. I mean, yeah. that, you know, and, and you know, it, that's it's there at some point, uh, market forces or economics and expenses and everything, um, you know, come to play, and you know, anything you do in life, and that I think that that's kind of uh, maybe another way of saying, you know, what you're saying is that. Um, they have a certain budget that can be used for, and of course we know we get volunteers for searches and et cetera, but some people do need to be paid to be out there and there's only so much money to go around. That's true, unfortunately. That's why we depend on all these volunteer organizations, you know, the well-trained ones, the, you know, the search and rescue and um, people that, have been trained and know what they're doing that are, you know, a real asset to the police force and to the families to get out mm-hmm. there and look. Mm-hmm. And God bless them. They do it for free. They do. Right. Mm-hmm. That's right. Let's talk about the NCIC, which you've already mentioned, uh, NamUs, uh, which I think everybody knows by now that's listening to this program, and then NECMEC, uh, Center for Exploited Children. Um you know, I know that I've had conversations with my guests. I know you have too, where uh, many police departments, police officers, investigators, um, maybe aren't even familiar, for example, with NamUs. Is that a, a training issue, or is that just some sort of, uh, you know, local police just not caring about what's going on at the national level? How do you see it? Depends on the agency, depends on the detective. Um, I've seen it where it's a lot of ego. I mean, they don't even want to bring in the FBI into cases. Um, and mm-hmm. that's a lot of ego. They want to be the one 
to solve it. Right. Um, in other cases, I have told sheriffs in small towns how to get a silver alert or how to get um, an amber alert. You know, they may never in their entire careers have a missing person. Yeah. All that's just falling under the radar, you know, name is, I mean, obviously everybody knows who Nick Nick is, but, you know, um, name is isn't going to fall under their radar unless they've gone to a training and have learned about it, you know? Yeah. I know I had a case uh, of late, uh, late 2017 uh, was the disappearance of Dow Phillips uh, in Tennessee, and at the point that I found out about his disappearance. He wasn't on the Charlie Project. He wasn't on NamUs. You couldn't find any, you know, news stories on his disappearance at all. And in talking to his wife, um, Missy, you know, it took forever for her to be able to get him on NamUs. He's on there now. But it did yeah. seem like it was a tug-of-war uh, type of issue where the local police just did not want to have anything to do with getting him into any national database at all. You run into that a lot? Uh, yeah, a lot of times, you know, I, I always let the families know about NamUs, and then I have them enter their case into NamUs, and that's for multiple reasons. Um, one, it empowers them during a time when um, all controls take it away from them. And two, they know that case better than anybody, and, you know, they'll know how to answer those questions and fill it in completely, whereas, you know, a police officer or somebody from like does not know those answers. Mm -hmm. But I always try to get them to do it first, and but sometimes what happens is they get the case in there, the case doesn't go live until NamUs can um, verify it with law enforcement, and at that time, law enforcement won't give their proof. And I think many of those are just the ego thing. They think, want control I think of the case. Right. I think I think it's ego too. And that 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 point has certainly come up with some of the guests uh that have had on the program for sure. Ego, absolutely. Sure. Okay. Well and I think there's another reason too. Uh, a lot of police won't which was new to me, it was something I discovered in two thousand five is that a lot of news stations won't run a story on a missing person until police give their permission. That's true. Yes. And then you fast forward to all the social media and all these people, and I don't want to down all these people that are trying to help on the Internet, but they do interfere a lot of times, and they shouldn't be doing that, where they're calling the police. So one little, one little law enforcement agency doesn't have departments, you know, per se, all the time answering phone calls from the public who, you know, have nothing to do with the case, aren't related to the person, you know, they're sitting there having all their hours taken up just answering calls for stupid questions. I could think that some of them don't want national exposure. Yeah. It's simply because of that. Yeah. Right. Right. Yeah, uh, and, you know, and I, of course, I'm sure you've also encountered over your years that, you know, we have people that get involved in these cases that um, 
even they're involved and maybe they don't have the family's best interest in mind. They're just involved so they can find out stuff for their own devices. You know, just yeah. just so they usually they can take it back to some crime board and get an ad a boy from the other people that they got a piece of information that nobody else got. Right. That's right. So they get a slap on the back. That's right. <laughs> that, that that is totally true. That is totally <laughs> that is totally true. They're in it so they yeah. can seem like the experts and get attention for themselves. That is that is certainly true, yeah. Maureen, and I uh, that that is rampant, rampant. I know, I know. Yeah. And it's also the reward mongers, and they think they're going to solve all these cases and get their reward. And in fact, they're counseling the families and telling them, "Oh, you have to put a reward up. You have to put a reward up." You know, to talk with families. I'm like, well, it's kind of your choice, but. If I ever you, wouldn't waste my time trying to have fundraisers to up yeah. and up reward money because I have friends out there with hundred thousand dollar rewards out and I've gotten not yeah. one tip. Absolutely true. Because of, uh, yeah. I could not. Don't waste I, your time you on you and I are totally on the same page as regarding that, Maureen, for sure. Uh, rewards. Yeah. It seems anyway that rewards do not solve missing persons cases. They just don't. Let's talk a little bit more about the families. The way you've seen it over the last uh, 14 years, what do families do wrong in those initial hours and days? Uh, you know, what have you experienced? What is the main thing that you see families who have a missing loved one, whether it's a child or sister, brother, whoever? What what's probably the biggest mistake they make? Trusting people on the internet. They, um, everybody knows to go to the internet first to get the word out. And all of a sudden you got all these people, you know, some of them aren't trying to do good, but, you know, also ran into all the ones that are just, whatever reason. They'll do things like, oh, I'll put up a page for your missing loved one, and they'll put up the page and then they'll pick the family off of it so that they can, you know, discuss badly about the family, you know, how the stuff goes on. The very first thing I always say to families is, your case, you own your case. Nobody else does. Not law enforcement, not the internet, not the media. You own your case, and you have to have complete control over every aspect of it from the beginning. Yeah. But usually, I do, you know, I don't get to that in that fast enough time period. Mm -hmm. Right. Right. I, I think that's a good point, too. I think that I think, uh, you know, not a, a lot of families that I've talked to, but at least a few enough to talk about it is that they do end up trusting the wrong people. People who look like they're trying to help. But once again, going back to what you said before, the only reason they're getting involved is so they can find out stuff for themselves. You know. And, uh, That's true. And, you know, I don't want anybody not to get involved because God bless these yeah. good-hearted people that, you know, have been very respectful of the families and empathize with them and can find out information, you know? Yeah. But these other ones that come in and interfere with the cases and have no idea about the system, have no idea what they're talking about, but then make themselves sound like they're an expert advocate or something. Yeah. You know, they just... 
they don't realize that they're wasting precious time for these families. I guess what we're saying for families out there, and we're going to get to the, the next. This next question will be relevant to this: is that um, not everybody is as they seem. No matter how nice they may be and everything, um, it's better to you know trust but verify instead of just um, you know believing somebody just because they're they want to be involved. That you have to be a little discerning right. and a little bit uh, discriminating when it comes to that. Very true. And well, some of the families have caught on. I think um, the public is following these cases on the internet more. So, you know, before they have a loved one missing, and so they've gotten a little bit wiser. I'm seeing. Mhm. I think so too. I think that's probably changed. You know, it's one of those things with the internet. It's both a help and a hindrance. Because in the help, yep. it's easier to network and get the word out, but also it does bring the kooks out. Um, yeah, you know, and hopefully a person like you and people who do what you do, you know, what I do, of course, my assistants, you know, we can help these people in trying to um, keep them away from those people who, you know, don't have the family's best interests in mind. And, and I've done that, you know, on a few occasions for sure. And I'm sure you have too. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Too many times to count. Yes, yes. Uh, you know, of course, we haven't even talked about <laughs> scammers, and, you know, and, you know, people saying, give me $10,000 and I can go get your son or daughter. I mean, I've had to tell people, you you know, we, you know, the way I feel about it, maybe you do too, Maureen, is a lot of times we have to be the bad guy. You know, we're the one that has to say to them, you know what, whatever that person's telling you and they're promising you this and promising you that. It's not true. I know it's going to make you feel bad, but it's not true. It's a scam. This person's lying to you. How many times have you been put in that situation? Uh, a lot of times. Yeah. A lot of times, especially with the blackmailers. So, yeah. yeah. Is there any way any families can prepare for a disappearance? Because it seems to me that, of course, every time it happens, um, you know, people – you know, they're thrown into this tornado. You know, it seems totally out of their control. Maybe that's the way you felt back in 2005. But is there any way that a family can prepare for it? Maybe if they, you know, just as an example, maybe if they have somebody who, you know, a son or daughter that's into drugs that maybe disappears once in a while, as we know some addicts do, and then come back. Maybe other situations, maybe they have a uh, a sister or a brother who's in a, a, a turbulent, you know, marriage, and the, you know, there's some de domestic abuse. Is there any way a family, you know, can prepare if something, you know, should like that should happen? Uh, wow. Well, well, because every situation is different, you can't ever completely prepare. Um, as far as the domestic violence, you know, if you have a loved one in a domestic violence situation. Or if you yourself are in a domestic violence situation, you know you should be documenting it and documenting it as your your kind of you know access your documentation, um, a video done at a friend's home on their computer would probably be the ideal way. That way, if something happens, at least the police know where to begin. Um, mm -hmm. I think, you know, other situations, <clears throat> as far as ch 
over, and obviously you have to have best practices in place at all times. You know, like I tell my children when they were little and my kids and my grandkids now, I said, if we're out in the public, I said, if I can't see your eyes and you can't see my eyes, you're not safe. And, you know, it's just use some practices like that, but, you know, that kids know how to get out of any kind of situation should they get into it or at least try, you know, to get out of it. Um, as far as teenagers, <sighs> I know there's a lot of families that don't call the police if their child runs, but they they need to each time because each time those kids need to be found fast. Um, I used to think that this human trafficking stuff was just a lark and everybody was using it as a use, you know, or, or as, as a way of saying, well, this must have been what happened to my loved one. Now I'm seeing that's not the case, but it is rampant out there. And these, especially these teenagers and these traffickers know what kids they look for. You know, they're looking for the, the bipolar kid, they're looking for um, kids with any kind of mental health issues. They're looking for the kids that are on drugs. They're looking for the kids that they can groom and get out of the house. You know, maybe it's... Um, I won't even go there. I was going to say, you know, it could be a bad home, and they're trying mm -hmm. to entice the child out of it. It doesn't even have to be a bad home. They may convince the kid that it's a bad home and entice them out. But these teens need to be looked for immediately. Mm -hmm. Of course. Right. Um, parents need to know as much as they can that the kids are really good at hiding it, all the social media that they're on. You know, they need all the best practices and safety tools out and using them with the teens. Okay. Um, and basically, we need to know height, weight, you know, things like that. I don't think most of us know. In fact, Missouri Missing, we rarely anymore put on a height and weight because it's kind of, you know, one family member may say one height and one weight, and another one says another height and another weight. And yeah. You know, and I really don't think the public even knows heights and weights unless it's seven foot man who's thousand pounds. Yeah, or, it really know, sticks out. Yeah, you're right. You're right. Yeah. yeah. You're so right. I, that, that's kind of silly, but I think the parents need it for the police. That's accurate. Yeah. Okay. You know, accounting okay. of weight and distance and things like that. Um, you know, as far as knowing what your child had on, yeah, we should all know that. Man, I was probably the worst at that. That was my greatest fear. If a child went missing, they'd ask me what my child had on. <laughs> I probably would have blown it. <laughs> <laughs> um, but there's also, you know, these families, and we had discussed this, um, you know, ahead of this program. Um, these families are in major trauma, and the first thing that goes in major trauma is short-term memory. And, you know, they may be asked things that they're not going to remember. They can't. I mean, it's gone. It's gone in their mind. They cannot dredge it up. But it may pop up five, ten years from now or never. So whatever ways families can think about things like what might go out of my mind, you know. Um, I see lots of pictures. Um, I used to get so mad at my daughter. I always take pictures of kids. Constantly, it's a cut. Just let them play, you know. 
picture. And now I'm like, yeah, take a picture, take a picture, take a picture. Mm. <laughs> so, Eula's pictures are the best um, thing. Okay. Let's move on to the law. Um, you've already mentioned you uh, tried to get um, this law, Billy's law, passed. Why don't you explain um, how that all came about? Um, well, that came about on MySpace back in the very beginning. Wow. Um, Jan Smolensky, Billy's mom, reached out to me. And she started asking me a whole series of questions. And then everybody else was kind of piping in. We kind of had just a, a group of us. And um, kind of became apparent that we were all kind of going through the same thing. Um, as far as our loved one being put in, in the NCIC or even knowing about the NCIC um, and knowing about names hadn't quite come about at that point that it did. And so all of Jan's questions kind of evolved into Billy's Law. So Billy's Law would um, make it where law enforcement and coroners and medical examiners have to put their law enforcement, the missing person cases into NamUs, and coroners, medical examiners have to put their um, unidentified into NamUs. And so in a sense, where we can match them up at. Now it's, right now we've got probably over 40,000 unidentified remains all over the country that aren't any system or ran in, in any proper system. We have missing persons on in any system. I mean, it doesn't help if a law enforcement agency takes um, a report and then doesn't put them in the NCIC. Right. Um, because then only that agency knows that person is missing. The city next to them has no idea if they encounter that missing person that there's even a report on that missing person unless they're in the NCIC. But th as you and said, though, and and so this you tried to get this law passed, and it sounds like a great idea. Why didn't it get passed? <laughs> politics, I guess. Um, I heard from one politician, that one person who works with uh, politicians all the time, he said that the one senator that denied us, he said he may have been all for the law. He said, but what happens is all of them will agree to say yes, yes, yes. Everybody gets to say yes, and they look kind of the constituent. The one person has to take the fall. And that way, the bill doesn't get passed. You're going to have to explain that to me again, I think maybe for the listeners as well. Because <laughs> I, don't, I don't know if any politicians listen to this I program. I, I, I know it's like uh, talking about like – you know, theoretical um, physics, but, you know, it just seems like um, it seems like so uh, obvious. And I realize we're not here to get into politics on this program, but it would seem like that would be something that all sides could agree on. But you're saying that they don't. Right. OK. Right. Um, well, they have to answer to the law enforcement agencies. If the law enforcement isn't for it, then they're getting heat from the law enforcement. Um, I don't know why coroners and medical examiners 
wouldn't be off work. I don't know. Again, it's everybody thinks they own the case. Um, yeah. I know. Okay. But, but yeah. Yeah, I'm going to even go back in and try to describe that political stuff again, but it made a lot of sense after it was told to me, but that's probably what took place. Okay. So. All right. So you think that, that, you think that there was some um, blowback from law enforcement about that, about this law that seems to make a lot of sense? Mm-hmm. Yeah, because it's more work for them. They have to do an additional entry into something, so more work. Okay. When, uh, wh- how long did it take to, when to once, and I'm, I'm somewhat familiar with Billy Smolinski's case. I know that it's uh, still unsolved and I, maybe something's coming to me at some point. Uh, somebody got taken to court for defamation. Was that that case as well? <coughs> yes. Okay. Right. Okay. Yeah. Jan, Jan Smolinski's been the only one in trouble for her Okay. All right. Sweet little Jan. <laughs> okay. I don't. I. I have to admit, I've never spoken to her, but uh, that seems to be. Uh, oh, you'll a, have to. Okay. You will have to. <laughs> okay. All right. I, I will. You're uh, we'll in for a real treat. No. All right. We'll try to make that happen for sure. But it just, I know that I've read, although I can't tell you the the certain circumstances of his disappearance, but I do remember reading, I do know that it was unsolved, and I remember reading something that ended up being a defamation case of some type. Okay, but how long did it take from the yeah. first like idea of this to even get it in front of anybody that could vote on it? How long did that take? Oh, gosh. Um, I'd have to go back and look at the years, but that was probably... Three or four years. Okay. Okay. Three or four years. Yeah. Uh, I would. I have yeah, to admit, I would have so. thought it would take longer than that. But three or four years. Uh, okay. Uh, well, you got to remember the idea was going through Jan's head ahead of that, but that was yeah. ahead of Namus, and then Namus came on, and then everything just clicked, and that's when yeah. it started. Okay. When Billy's all started. Any chance of um, trying again to get something like that done? We're we're trying to go state by state. Um, right now, it's just too hard to get anything passed in D.C. Mm-hmm. I mean, ideally, it would be full. But um, now we're having to go state to state and get it passed that way. Okay. Which takes a lot longer, but... Yeah. You know, at least there are states now that have to input into NamUs. Okay. Let's talk about your maybe daily or weekly duties with um, these different titles and responsibilities uh, that you have. What is a typical uh, week for you regarding uh, working with families or, you know, any of the volunteering and coordinating and everything that you do? What's a typical week for you? Um, I never know what's going to happen from week to week. Um, you know, how many people may contact Missouri scene and need our help, or you know, other people will flag me on a missing persons case to make me aware of the case, and you know, wanting me to reach out to the family. We try not to ambulance chase, but you know, 
when you've got a lot of people trying to get you to talk to the family, you know, you go ahead and do it. Mm-hmm. Um, but basically, we, you know, just talk with them, find out what's going on, um, see what's taking place, um, you see if they need a flyer made. Um, flyers aren't our big thing. We're not this guy that are trying to get the flyer up first. We're not that. Although we um, certainly believe in the awareness, you know, getting the awareness out there. Our concern is the family. How are you doing? Um, what can we do for you? Um, you know, if you need to call us at 1 in the morning, call us. You know, you know we're there for the support side. Of the family. Mm-hmm. Now we uh, should. Sometimes we, we go out and get the media for them, you right. know, or we'll set up a vigil, or you know, it just it varies on each case. Yeah. Right. Uh, I and we have to remember that that um, you have a job that is outside of the missing persons community, like. Oh. Uh, I do. A weekly job. Yeah, so this two jobs outside. Uh, two outside job. of two jobs. Okay. Uh, yeah, um, right. Okay. And so you're doing this on top of your regular uh, salaried job. Correct. Oh, wow. Correct. I get no salary from Missouri right. whatsoever. Right. Okay. How many hours would you say you put in a week uh, for uh, your efforts with working with families? How many hours a week? Oh, gosh. You know, and again, it just depends. Mm-hmm. Um, I'd say 10, 15 sometimes hours. Um, you know, and some weeks it may not be as much, but then I have other things I'm doing, like um, the Big Sur. And I, you know, I'm putting in time on conference calls and planning for the next search and, you know, things like that. So, mm-hmm. Let's talk about what is the Big Search? Big search. Um, the big search started with Free International in Las Vegas, um, and then Veronica's Voice brought it here. Veronica's Voice is a nonprofit here in Kansas City. They brought it here, and um, we just had our second one in October. Um, I've been part of the leadership management team on both first year brought here and the second year. Um, and this is all in partnership with Cost Kids and Free International and and then organizations here are partnering with Veronica's Voice. So Missouri Missing is partnering with Veronica's Voice. Um, so what we do is once a year in the fall, we take three days, um, so Friday, Saturday, and Sunday, and we have command centers. Uh, first year we had one command center. Last year we had two command centers, one on the Missouri side, one on the Missouri side. Um, and we gather intel, and we have a booklet of, uh, I think it's 20 children are in the booklet missing children, and we've kind of coordinated that with a lot of different people as to, you know, who to put in the book, and we get volunteers from the community. Um, We had close to 300 volunteers this last time, and we go out in teams, and they take the booklets with them, and they go to the areas that we've mapped out for 
of them from our intel, and they go into, um, it could be hotels, it could be um, stores, um, you know, quick trips, gas stations, things like that, um, libraries, all sorts of places, uh, retail stores, and they go in there and they show the book. And through that, through the past two years, we have recovered, oh gosh, I want to say it's been about 31 kids. Wow. Wow. I know. It's amazing. It really is amazing. Um, we generate a lot of tips. So when our teaching ends, it doesn't end, you know. Tips are being generated, kids are still being found because of the tips. Um, all tips go to law enforcement. Mm-hmm. So it, it's a pretty amazing thing. Yeah. Yeah. And Sounds it's like starting it. wow. to I mean, starting to go out to other cities now. You know, hopefully it will be all over the country at some point. Right. Wow. We're kind yeah. of the guinea pigs because we were the second city. Now, I know Las Vegas, I think they go out on a monthly basis and do it. But they don't have to contend with as much as we do in the Kansas City area. Um, Las Vegas, we have, like, North Las Vegas, Las Vegas, and Henderson. So they only have three municipalities to yes. deal with. Yes, Whereas when you get into a big metro area, and this was a real shock for them when they came in the first year, they couldn't believe how many jurisdictions you have to deal with. Yes, yes. Having lived in Las Vegas, you're right. It's uh, Things are a little simpler there. In addition is that, uh, you know, in Las Vegas, even though it's a growing city and, you know, it's been growing, you know, for like 30 years now, there's still a defined area of the city. You know, you're either in the city or you're in the desert, whereas most other American cities, it's like you have the city and then you get into the suburbs and then the municipalities and everything, and it's just not like that. In Las Vegas at all. Yeah. Not at all. Yeah. So, yeah, they were shocked. So, we're, Kansas City's really the big guinea pig on um, the big search and taking it mm-hmm. into other big metro areas. And once again, how long this, has this been going on? Um, for Kansas City, this will be our, we just finished up our second one. Okay. So, we've only done it twice now. Okay. And when did it start in Las Vegas? You know, I knew you were going to ask it. I can't remember <laughs> when you just started it. Okay. You uh, would get you... on Free International, and it'll be on there. Okay. Um, I can't remember now. They, okay. They've been doing it for a couple of years. I okay. mean, obviously, they wanted to feel comfortable before they took it right. anywhere else. Right. Okay. Yeah. Um, if there are people listening to this, and and as I've already told you, in 2020, uh, one of my main concentrations is going to be, you know, urging listeners to get more involved instead of just being listeners to the program on, you know, every Friday, to get more involved with searches and, you know, learning the even just anything, learn how to do searches on the internet. You know, go through databases, you know, get out there, whatever they think that they can do instead of just listening to the program. That's going to be a main concentration of mine for 2020. How would you, from your point of view, what is the easiest way for people to get involved? The 
best way to get involved is to, one, educate yourself on the missing persons laws as they currently stand in your state. Uh, talk to your local law enforcement. See what their protocols are and see if they've got those in writing. <laughs> because a lot of times I'll just think they think they're supposed to be doing it this way and there may be no protocol whatsoever. Um, find out a little bit about that. Um, really listen to the families, you know, on the Internet. You know, see what they're going through. Um Obviously, it's, you know, we want to find the missing person, but there's a lot more components to this. The family and the loved ones of the missing that need care, too. So I think it's really looking at your own skills. Um, if you're better, not on the empathy side, but better on the research side, stick to that, you know? Okay. Find out about the different databases. Find out about you know, the system and how things work and what happens once a report is made or what happens once a body is found. And see if there's any, uh, you know, grassroots missing persons uh, groups in the, their their area. Of course, people that are in uh, cities maybe are going to have an easier time doing that than people, you know, out in the country. But um, how about that? Yeah, but they, even the people out in the country, you know, they usually have a little bit of a bigger city somewhere near them, not mm. a huge city, but, you know, something. And there's a lot of things. A lot of these places have human trafficking organizations now, um, anti-trafficking organizations. So if that's, you know, something of their interest, they're going to the meetings. Um See what they can do for the parents of murdered children groups. They're everywhere, you know. Well, doesn't matter where. But a lot of those, you know, began as a missing person. Uh, they can learn a lot from that. Um, if they have opportunities to attend any kind of training, do it. Okay. You've been at this uh, for 14 years. Uh, would you say things have improved since you got involved? Uh, I, I'd like to think that they are, but we still know that a lot of people uh, go missing. Do you think that uh, the efforts of you and so many other people, and then, of course, me more recently, are, are we making a dent you know, in this? Because as, as I think everybody now knows, the, the number of missing people who, are, people who are missing, you know, it's an incredible number. Are we making a dent? Are you making a dent? Um, I think you are for the families in that you're giving them a um, As far as making a dent, the numbers are going to go up because you're now, you know, like, there's so many missing that weren't put into the NCIC, you know, that are just sitting in all these little law enforcement agencies' drawers, and um, now... They're starting to come forward more, and I think it's because of, of, you know, all the talk, you know, that we keep talking about the missing, and I think that talk is generating them to to do what they, you know, should be doing, getting mm -hmm. them in to the NCIC. So those numbers are shooting up a little bit because of that, but we still have so many missing that are yeah. not reported anywhere. So. Okay.
yeah, you guys are making a difference. Don't ever think you're not. Don't anyone ever think you're not making a difference. As long as you're not bringing more um, trauma to the families, and as long as you're educating people, you know, as mm -hmm. long as you keep the talk going about the missing and unidentified, you're doing wonders for us. Okay. Any final words? Uh... Maureen, before we conclude this interview, I think we've had a wide-ranging interview with a lot of um, good tips, but I think we've talked a little bit of theory here as well. Um, any final words before we complete this interview? Um, well, I would like to tell the families to make sure they're making use of podcasts like yours. Um, make sure they listen to some of these podcasts first, not yours, but others. Well, yours too, but I mean, mm -hmm. <laughs> make sure to see how they're treating people because, you know, what I noticed with you is was tremendous respect for the family. Thank you. And not all these places are doing that. So I would tell the families if you're thinking of doing a podcast, really look into it first. Right. And see what you're doing. And what are they doing on the back end? Are they tearing you down, you know, or they didn't care? anything about you, you know, just look it over before you sign up for one of these, um, but, yeah, for you, I would say do it, <laughs> you know, yeah. any of the families out there that know me, do it. <laughs> yeah, I, I agree with you, I agree with you, but I also see, I also know what you're saying is that, um, you know, there are quite a few guests who are behind the scenes, uh, you know, they like the publicity that some other programs uh, can give their missing loved one, but on the other hand, they get upset, you know, when it's like, you know, they did that and they didn't even contact me, didn't even ask me. So, you know, they they got this wrong, they got that wrong, they didn't talk about this, they didn't talk about that, um, yep. and it does tick some of them off sometimes. Not all of them are ticked off, but I can't tell you. I'm not gonna would never mention the guest name, but I can tell you that one particular guest. The reason she came on the program is she was so ticked off of how many other programs were di were covering uh, this missing person's case and weren't consulting her. Yeah. That's the reason yep. she found yep. Unfound to come on and do an interview because these other people just would not talk to her. They just wanted to do it on their own. Yeah. Yeah. yeah or they'll have the families on and then they'll do a dirty surprise like – Bringing a psychic on, and they haven't even oh. asked that family their views of a psychic. You know? Yeah, well, yeah, yeah. Yes, <laughs> as yeah. everybody knows, we don't do psychics <laughs> on Unfound, so everybody knows how I feel about that. Yeah, right, right, <laughs> right. Yes. Um, before you go, why don't you just, uh, Maureen? Why don't you just uh, once again say, say all of the organizations and your positions in those organizations. <laughs> Um, before we okay. complete this interview, if you could. Sure. Um, I am the Executive Director of Communications for Missouri Missing, which is a 501c3 based out of Jefferson City, Missouri. Um, I am the Nameless Victim Advocate for Kansas. Um, I went through a academy to get that title. It's not a self-proclaimed title. Um, on the leadership management team of the Big Search, KC. And as far as missing, that's about it. Okay. Well, that's plenty, Maureen, yeah. especially considering uh, you have two other jobs 
uh, that you have that are not involved with uh, the missing persons community. Uh, maybe you don't know this. I think most of my listeners now know this. That you know what I I do this full time. You know, reporting on and doing at least some investigation of you know anything that I think can help the families when I end up contacting them or they find me or one of my assistants. So um, you know, you, you're doing quite a bit despite you know having other work you know to do. So. And uh, I appreciate you're, you're welcome, and I appreciate you being on this episode of Unfound. Thanks for having me. You're very welcome, Maureen. And that was my interview with Maureen Reinches, missing persons volunteer, advocate, and coordinator. I thank her for joining me and all of you on this episode. What I thought was so important about interviewing Maureen is that she has a regular job like most of you do. She has to make time to give to the missing persons community. But Maureen has still become a leader, a coordinator, and important enough that even one of my assistants said, Hey, Ed, you have to interview her. What I'm saying is not everyone needs to be like me, a guy who does this full-time. You can still have an impact only working part-time for the missing persons community and its families. Please remember that. As for what we talked about, these are the three points that stuck out to me. Number one, you heard it from Maureen herself. One of the reasons missing persons cases don't get investigated well is because they aren't revenue generating. And I think her point in comparing this to murder cases is that many times murders are attached to wider ranging crimes, drugs, guns, organized crime, etc. And the solving of them can bring in additional grants and money for continuing to solve and prosecute those crimes. Whereas missing persons cases, as we've learned, although they certainly can be attached to drugs and prostitution, they are mostly personal crimes. To remind you of what I've said in the past, relationships are the number one cause of disappearances. Well, solving crimes involving relationships is just as Maureen said, non-revenue generating, and ultimately, all justice comes down to dollars and cents. Number two, if you're taking an interest in missing persons cases, just so you can get personal attention for your YouTube channel and your blog and to gain notoriety, and you want to become somebody, then you're doing this for all the wrong reasons. And really, you're only a hindrance, not a help. All you're really then doing is using the victims and their families for your own benefit. I'll say it again. Theories don't solve cases. Yes, we theorize because we're human. But getting involved, digging for information, trying to find out if something is true or not, and not publicizing it until you are 100% sure is the only way to conduct reporting in not just the missing persons community, but anywhere. In fact, the big problem with all media in the U.S. right now is there is more money to be made voicing opinions than actually digging for facts. We can't let that happen with missing persons cases. And number three, families need to learn very quickly that eventually they'll be responsible for getting their own missing persons case solved. You heard it straight from Maureen herself, and she has way more experience than I do even though I've figured that out as well. 
But to be clear, Maureen is not saying the police, quote-unquote, don't care. They do. But police work is all about solving the crime today, not the one from 10 years ago. Catching the criminal today keeps the police out of the news, whereas crimes from 10 years ago aren't in the news anymore anyway. Out of sight, out of mind. Now, if the suspect in a disappearance from 10 years ago comes in, sits down and confesses, sure, the officer on duty will take the report, put the person in handcuffs, and escort him to jail. Other than that, police departments won't do much. In fact, as you heard, law enforcement got in the way of Billy's Law because it would cause them to have additional work. This is why the missing persons community needs people like you to help these families navigate all of this. Because they can't do it all on their own. And that's the program. If you found it informative, please go to the app that you use to listen to Unfound and give this podcast a nice review. I thank you for listening. I'm Ed Denzel, and you've been listening to Unfound.